Thanks, Brian, for leading us uh, this morning. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. My name's Norton, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver, and today we are going to discuss a common perception, uh, a perception that a lot of us often have about the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, and the perception is this, that the Old Testament is mainly about laws, judgment, and condemnation, right? It's about a bunch of laws that people didn't keep, right? So God got angry, and he was always judging and condemning people because they couldn't keep his laws. And Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, is like the poster child, for this perception, right? Uh, because Leviticus is full of laws and judgment and condemnation. In fact, some of you might know there are verses in Leviticus where it says, if you do this one thing, then you are wrong and you are sinful and you are an abomination to God, right? Which just reinforces this idea that the Old Testament is all about laws and judgment and condemnation. And if that's true, then who wants to really read this book, right? Who wants to even follow the teachings of this book. Now, uh, some of us address this challenge or this perception or this issue, and we say, well, the Old Testament might be full of laws and judgment um, and condemnation, uh, but the New Testament is different, and Jesus is different. He was nice, and he was kind, and he took all those crazy and silly laws, and he just sort of threw them all out, and Jesus just loved everyone. Um, and that's not really true either. Now, it, I mean, it's true. Jesus did love people, right? Uh, but Jesus didn't throw out the Old Testament. In fact, sometimes Jesus raised the bar from the Old Testament. There were times where Jesus said, like, actually, it's, it's, it's harder than that. It's more difficult than that. Jesus often raised the bar. In fact, did you know that Jesus quoted from Leviticus and said, we should follow this? We should live according to this. We shouldn't set it aside. So there's a challenge there if we want to make that distinction. But, but here's what I think the real problem is. Here's the real issue for, for this perception. I don't think that we really understand the Old Testament. Yes, there are some laws in the Old Testament. And yes, there are times when God gets angry with people and he judges people, especially when it comes to injustice, whenever he sees that. But if this is our primary perception of what the Old Testament is all about, then I think we're missing something really important. And I want to show you that today. So last week, we kicked off a 13-week series through the book of Leviticus, this poster child for all that we think is wrong with the Old Testament, for all that is weird and strange and barbaric and outdated about the Old Testament. And I gave a ton of background last Sunday. Uh, so if you weren't here, you need to go online and listen to that message because that sort of set everything up that we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks. Um, today, we're just going to jump right into the deep end of the pool and we're going to start reading through and talking about Leviticus. And we're going to look at the first three chapters and uh, I'll skim and I'll skip a few parts, but we're going to try to read a lot of it. And uh, here's how it starts. It says this, chapter one, verse one, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. 
So uh, it's important to realize God is giving some instructions to Moses, but the instructions are for everyone. Tell this to all the people of Israel. And the setting is Mount Sinai. So this is actually just months removed from when God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to the desert. They came to this huge mountain where they stopped and they made this covenant with God. They entered into a covenant relationship and God said, I will be your God, Yahweh. That was the Hebrew name for God. And you will be my people. And then they built this tent of meeting. It was a place where basically they could go and meet with God. And then Leviticus starts. And and I actually talked a whole bunch about that tent of meeting and all a lot of symbolism there. Um, I did a podcast earlier this week. We're doing that every week. So if you want to go on our podcast and listen to that, you can hear more about that. But God then speaks to them or speaks to Moses from this tent of meeting. And basically God is about to tell Moses and the people, here's how we're going to live together. And here's how we're going to bring a new order into the world, and it starts with God saying, when anyone among you brings an offering. And there are two Hebrew words that are used here. This was originally written in in Hebrew, and they're really important, and and I want to just mention them to you, Um, and they'll sound similar. So one's a verb and one's a noun, but they're related. Um, Karab is the verb, and that means to draw near to someone or to approach someone in order to offer or give something to someone. And then korban is the noun, that's the actual thing that you're giving. And and most commonly, it just means a gift. You have a gift that you want to give someone or something that you're going to offer them. So God is basically saying, look, when you want to draw near to me, when you want to approach me, in order to give me something, which if we just pause right there for a second, remember the context, that would have been a new and radically different concept for them. You didn't draw near to the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt made them work. The gods of Egypt enslaved them. The gods of Egypt and really all of the gods of the ancient world were always viewed as powerful and distant and fickle and demanding, and you never knew where you stood with the gods. You certainly didn't approach them. You did not draw near to them. You feared the gods. And in fact, the Israelites had this perception of Yahweh when he first saved them, because they get out into the wilderness, and I don't know if you remember the story, they get to Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning up on Mount Sinai, and the Israelites say, you know what, why not you, Moses, why don't you head up to the mountain and talk to God? Like, we'll just stay down here, and you can be the person that talks to God for us, because they were scared of God, because this is just how you viewed the gods in the ancient world. The gods of the ancient world were like mob bosses, right? It was important to have a mob boss and have allegiance to your mob boss, right? But you were always a bit scared of him. You you never looked him in the eye. You you never went and talked to him unless he had something to say to you. And if he had something to say to you, then that was kind of trouble. Things were not looking good. And Yahweh says, hey, here's what I want you to know first. Here's what I want to tell you first. If you want to approach me, if you want to draw close, If you want to connect with me, if you want to meet with me, if you want to bring something to me, here's how you can do that. And then what follows for the next few chapters are instructions on five types of gifts that the people 
could bring to God. So today we're going to look at the first three. We'll just talk about those, and then next week we're going to come back and look at the other two. And here's how the first gift that you can approach God with is described. And I'm going to read quite a bit here, so we won't put all the verses on the screen. I want to encourage you to just follow along in your own Bible. I mentioned last week, this is a good series to actually bring an actual Bible to church, so you can read through. If you forgot to bring one, that's okay. Maybe bring one next week, or we'll even give you one. You can grab one on the way out. But here's what it says about this very first gift, starting in chapter 1, verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You're to lay your hands on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You're to skin the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priests are to put fire on the altar, arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You're to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Um, So this gift is called the burnt offering uh, because if you didn't capture the imagery here, it is an animal being sacrificed on an altar. And there was this altar, which was basically like a large fire pit, and it was in the courtyard of this tent of meeting. Now, sometimes this is also called the whole burnt offering because the entire animal is offered And burned in the fire. Sometimes this is called the smoke offering or even the ascension offering. And that's because the Hebrew word that's used here to describe to burn something is not the normal word for burn. It literally means to transform something into smoke that rises up or goes up or ascends up to God. And this smoke is described as an aroma or a smell that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, just to be super clear about what is happening, let me walk you through this process just for a second. Let's get detailed for a second. A donor would show up at the tent of meeting, the entrance to the tent, to present an animal that they want to give to God. And in this initial description, it's an animal from the herd. So herd, anytime in, in Hebrew, the word herd means, uh, refers to oxen. And because it's a male, that's going to be a bull. So this would be a donor showing up, pulling a bull or bringing a bull with them. The donor would then lay their hands on the head of the bull, and that meant this bull is mine. I am offering this bull on my behalf or maybe even on my family's behalf. Now, there's some other passages later in Exodus that talk about putting your hands on the head of an animal, and that might mean something different. But in this case, this is just a symbol of ownership. This is mine. I am bringing it to God on my behalf. Then the bull would be slaughtered by the donor, by the person. It says, you are to slaughter the young bull. So the donor would probably slit the throat of the bull, 
Try to make it as quick as possible. And I know this is graphic, so hang in there for a little longer. Then the attention shifts to the priests. The priests capture some of the blood. They splash it against the sides of the fire pit or the altar. We don't know exactly why. Uh, We know that blood was very symbolic of life in their culture. And so perhaps this is a way of honoring the life of this animal. Perhaps this is a way of saying all life comes from God and the life of this animal came from God and now we're returning and giving it back to you, God. We we don't know exactly why, but, but that's what's going on. And then the animal would be skinned, quartered, cut up into all pieces And the priest would put certain parts on the fire and then they would wash certain parts and there's some reasons for that. But eventually the whole animal would be given to God. It would be burned on the fire and there would be nothing left. Now, you might be wondering at this point, why are these the kind of gifts that they're bringing to God. I mean, when you give a gift to someone, you give them a sweater, right? You don't don't give them a slaughtered bull. Why are they slaughtering animals? Why are they doing this so much as gifts to God? And that's a really big question. And and I'll address it more fully um, next week. But for now, you just need to know, this was common in that culture. This was just common. The the Israelites, in fact, weren't even the only ones who were slaughtering animals as, as gifts to their God. Almost every ancient culture did this in some form or fashion. Now, the details of why different cultures did this or how they did this, those often varied, and there are some key differences with other cultures. But as primitive and as barbaric as all of this sounds to us, this was normal in their lives and in their culture. And I'm going to suggest it's maybe not as barbaric as we think it is. Now, let's move on because there's a few more instructions. Uh, Verse 10 says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, and then there's a whole bunch of instructions, I won't read those, about giving a sheep or a goat, and those are almost identical to the ones about giving a bull. Um, And then in verse 14, skip down, it says, if the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, You are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. And then there's all kinds of instructions about how you would offer a bird. And those are a little bit different, right? Because uh, bird anatomy is a little bit different than bull anatomy. So the things you do in that way are going to be different. But all three categories, whether it's a bull, whether it's a sheep or a goat, or whether it's a bird, they all end with this phrase, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And and let me tell you what's going on with giving people these three different options. If you are wealthy, you probably have a herd of oxen and bulls. And so you can give one of those. If you're middle class, they wouldn't have used the term middle class, but basically if you're middle class, you probably don't have bulls. Those are expensive. But you maybe have sheep or goats. Those are less expensive. So you could offer one of those. And if you're poor... You can't afford a bull, you can't afford a sheep, you can't afford goats, but you could simply bring a dove or a pigeon. In the New Testament, we read about a couple named Mary and Joseph, who after they have a son named Jesus, they go to the temple and they offer a burnt 
offering. And their burnt offering is a bird, probably because they're not wealthy. They're poor, and that's all they have to offer. And so in Leviticus, we read all of these instructions about bulls and about sheep and about goats and about birds, and it gets repetitive, right? And it's kind of gross and it's gory and all of those things and even gets boring. And so we even start skimming verses at that point. But I don't want you to miss how important some of these details are. God is saying, it doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor you are. You can draw close to me doesn't matter how much you have, anyone can give a gift to me. And one gift is not better than another. A bull is not more important or a better gift than a bird. God is not more pleased. All three kinds of gifts God is equally pleased with, which means anybody can approach God. Anyone can draw close to God. Everyone is accepted by God. God does not make distinctions based on wealth or based on gifts. This God is going to be very different than the gods of Egypt. This God is very different from all the other gods. Now, that's the whole burnt offering. And in Israel, uh, this was the most common offering. This was like uh, the general purpose gift Um, It was often paired with other offerings or other gifts. In fact, we have lots of descriptions throughout the Old Testament of people bringing whole burnt offerings at the tent of meeting or later at the temple for all sorts of different reasons. But I want to move forward and look at the second gift because here's the second gift. It's called uh, the grain offering and it's described in chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, Their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, extra virgin only, um, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion or a token portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. So this is commonly called just the grain offering. Sometimes it's called the cereal offering because it might have been different types of grain. Um, And this is even less costly than the whole burnt offering, right? Maybe you can't afford a bull, a sheep, a goat, or even a bird, but everybody has flour, Right? Everybody can take a bowl of flour and bring it as a gift to God, and even a bowl of flour is called an aroma, pleasing to the Lord. Now, there are some pretty obvious differences between the grain offering and the whole burnt offering, right? For starters, it's not an animal. This is the only gift, this is the only offering described in Leviticus that does not include killing an animal, but it still represents something that would have been important to you, right? Something that that sustained you. It was the food that you ate, and it was something that you attributed to God. God made the barley or the wheat grow. You didn't make it grow. So God gave this gift to me, and now I'm just giving a portion of this gift back to God. 
And in this description, you mix you know, olive oil and frankincense with the flour. The frankincense would have smelled really good when it was burned. I thought about burning a whole bunch of frankincense in here this morning, but then we'd all be coughing and that wouldn't be good. So, uh, so we didn't do that, but you would offer this and the priest would take a portion of it, a pinch of it or a spoonful of it, or maybe just a handful of it and burn it in the fire. And then this is different from the whole burnt offering. The priests would keep the rest of the flour. And that's because they would use it for their own food. Because if you were a priest, your full-time job was overseeing and managing all of these things happening at the tent of meeting, which means you didn't have flocks and you didn't have herds and you didn't have land and you couldn't raise produce and agriculture. So this was God's way of providing for the priests. And so part of it is burned and the rest is given to the priests for their use. And that is called a most holy part of this offering. Now, like the whole burnt offering, there's three options for the grain offering. We won't read all of them. The first is just flour that you can bring. That's the one we read. The second option, verse four and following after that, talks about bringing a grain offering that has been baked in the oven or has been cooked on a griddle or cooked in a pan. So this would be a loaf of bread that you've made. Maybe a cake that you've made. Maybe pancakes, maybe waffles. Priests would have liked that, right? Maybe you bring the waffles. So you can bring that as an option. And then down farther, verse 14 talks about bringing uncooked wheat or barley as your gift, meaning wheat or barley that has just been harvested in the fields. And there's all kinds of instructions that seem random to us that are interspersed in all of this. And uh, I'll, we'll take some time and maybe look at some of those things in the podcast this week. Um, but that's the grain offering. So there's the whole burnt offering, there's the grain offering, and there's one more. There's a third gift you can bring, and I want to look at that now. It's called the fellowship offering. Chapter 3, verse 1 says... If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. So this is, uh, as I said, the fellowship offering. And the Hebrew word used here is the word shelamim. Shalomim, so you might recognize another Hebrew word in there, shalom, that it's very similar to, and it has the same root. And so this is sometimes called the peace offering. Uh, sometimes it's called the communion offering. Sometimes it's even called the well-being offering. So you might see all of those different uh, titles, but most commonly it's called the fellowship offering. And here's the description of this one, verse two. It says, you are to lay your hand on the head of your offering, and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So let me stop there. Um, at first glance, this sounds a lot like the burnt offering, doesn't it? 
right? I mean, it's an animal from the herd, so that's going to be a bull. Uh, The passage goes on later to say you could bring a ram or a goat as one of these uh, fellowship offerings. You slaughter it. The priest splashed the blood again. It's burned on the fire, and it's aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. So this all sounds familiar. In fact, it sounds the same. If you're just reading it at first glance, it sounds just like the burnt offering. But there is one key difference. What you burn is actually quite different. It says you specifically take the internal organs and the fat that is connected to them, and that's the part of the animal that you burn on the fire pit. It doesn't say you burn the whole thing, which obviously raises the question, well, what do you do with all the other meat? Well, Leviticus 7 gives us some additional instructions. These initial instructions are for people bringing the offerings, and then there's a few additional instructions after this section for the priests themselves. Hey, when people bring the offerings, here's a few more things that I need to tell you that you need to do. So I want to read a few of those things real quick. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 15 says this, the meat of their fellowship offering, that's the fellowship offering people are bringing, must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it until morning. So people actually eat the meat. And then verse 29, skip down. Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to the Lord. With their own hands, they are to present the food offering to the Lord. They are to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. And you are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. And then it goes on, and there's a whole bunch of more details that we won't read. But now we see how this is different. The fellowship offering is a meal that you eat. It's bringing an animal and you give a portion to God. You take the internal organs and the fat that's connected to them because apparently that was important. We don't always know why. We have some ideas, but apparently that was a really important. And so that part you give to God and then you give some to the priest. They always get the breast and the thigh, right? There's always somebody at the table that gets the drumstick and has their preference. We don't know where this started or why it started, but apparently the priest, the, the priests always get the breast and the thigh. So you give that to them and then the rest of the meat you and your family eat with the priests together. Now you begin to see this is a meal of celebration. This is why it's called a fellowship offering or maybe even a communion offering or a well-being offering. This is a gift you're bringing to God where you're actually celebrating something over a shared meal. And now we're starting to get to the purpose of these gifts, the heart behind these gifts, why you might bring one of these first three gifts that are described. And at least in the the case of the fellowship offering, it's spelled out very clearly. Look at what else it says in Leviticus chapter seven. It gives three reasons, and I wanna put these on the screen because they're, they're so important. Chapter seven, verse 12, it says, if they offer it as an expression of thankfulness. 
So first reason you might bring one of these fellowship offerings is just because you're grateful. Because you're thankful. Because God has done something in your life or maybe there was something specific that you're thankful for. Second reason you might bring it, verse 16, if, however, their offering is the result of a vow. This is also about gratefulness, right? You're grateful that God has done something, but maybe before God did that something, you prayed for him and you said, if you'll do this, then I promise to do this. There's a story about a woman named Hannah in the Old Testament. She's an amazing woman, and she couldn't have children, and she prays to God, God, if you would bless me with a son, then I promise I will dedicate him to you, and I will offer him to be a priest to serve you his whole life. And apparently God thinks this is a pretty good idea, and so he blesses her with a son, and she comes back to the temple, and she offers a fellowship offering as a way of saying Thank you to God. I'm fulfilling the vow that I made to you. And then there's a third reason you can offer a fellowship offering. It just says in the rest of that verse, or if somebody brings it and it is a free will offering. Free will just means you're just bringing it because you feel like it. (laughs) There's no specific reason. You're just moved to celebrate a meal with God because there's something that you want to celebrate. And you read all of this. You read all of these chapters and all of these descriptions about these first three gifts, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, and did you notice anything? There's not a single mention of sin. Nothing about God's anger. Nothing about his wrath. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There are no laws. These aren't really laws. It starts with when you want to bring a gift. Here's how you can do it in a very intentional way. But there's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's no mention of guilt. There's no mention of punishment. There's no sense whatsoever that you are giving these gifts or doing these actions in order to appease God or to somehow satisfy God or to somehow get God back on your side because you're on his bad side. And here's what I want you to take away from all of these details. A few key lessons. The first lesson is this. Leviticus does not begin with laws and judgment and condemnation. It's not about what you have to do to get God on your side, right? God is already on your side. God is already saying to the people, look, I am already on your side. I'm different than the Egyptian gods. I'm not going to enslave you. I'm not going to put heavy demands on you. I'm not here to condemn you. I don't have to be appeased. I love you. I saved you. I rescued you. I delivered you. I want to live with you. And if you want to celebrate that, and if you want to be thankful and grateful for that, well, here's how you can do that. Here's where we can get started. I would welcome that. If you want to approach me and draw close to me, that would be pleasing to me. 
Here's a second lesson. These offerings are about giving something. They're not about getting something. They're gifts. They're not bribes. (laughs) They're not designed to get God to do something. They're not about getting back in God's good graces. They're not punishment for anything. And it's easy to think they are because there's so much blood and there's guts and there's an animal that is being killed, right? And yet we just don't live in that culture. So this seems foreign to us. Or maybe you've never worked in a butcher shop. I never have. So this seems weird and violent to us, but it's not at all. These were just the ingredients of everyday life for them. And it had nothing to do with getting something from God. It was all about giving something to God. And that gets to the heart of all this, the last lesson that I think we need to learn. These offerings are about joy and gratitude. They're about joy and gratitude. I mean, that is the compelling motivation for bringing one of these first three offerings. I want to read you a quote. I love this quote. It's by a Hebrew scholar named Samuel Ballantyne. He wrote a commentary on the book of Leviticus, and he says this, the motivation for coming into God's presence is joy, not obligation. The catalyst for the gift is happiness in search of celebration, not duty in fulfillment of mandate or guilt in need of nullification. Isn't that powerful? There's no sense of obligation in these gifts. In fact, scholars call these the three voluntary gifts because they're voluntary. They're not commanded. You don't have to do these things. You don't do them to fix something. You don't do these things or bring these things to solve a problem. You simply bring them because they're a gift. You want to offer to God and you want to draw close to him. The catalyst for these gifts is happiness in search of a celebration. And if the beginning of Leviticus tells us anything, it's that God wants us to celebrate. He wants us to express our gratitude to him in very tangible, earthy, everyday ways. Maybe differently than the people of that culture did, right? but not just in concepts. He wants us to express our gratitude in tangible, physical ways, and God wants us to draw near to him. So what will that look like in your life? How might you celebrate? How might you express gratitude to God tangibly? How might you be drawing close to God? I hope you'll think about that this week. Let me pray for us. God, this is um, such an interesting book and an interesting description of your relationship with people so long ago. And um, God, I, I think all of us desire to have a close relationship with you, to know you, to live with you, to understand who you are, what you want for our lives, how you created us. So today, help us to remember that you want that for us just as much as we want that for you, from you, and that you love us, 
And that you saved us just like you did them. And that you simply invite us to come to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.